the world-renowned detective Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson went on a camping trip. And as they lay down for the night, Holmes said, Watson, look up into the sky and tell me what you observe. Watson laid there for a second looking into the sky and he said, well, I see millions and millions of stars. And Sherlock Holmes asked him, well, what does that say to you? He says, well, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Theologically, it tells me that God is great and that we are small and insignificant in comparison to him. He said, meteorologically, it tells me that we're going to have a beautiful day tomorrow. He looked over at Holmes and said, what does it tell you, Mr. Holmes? Holmes thought for a second, looked around and said, well, Watson, it tells me somebody stole our tent What's the point? The point, if you stop and think about it, is that there are times in life when we can overthink things so much that we miss the obvious. We can look for, oh, the obscure or hidden meanings. We can look for the hidden motives behind things and miss the obvious in the process. As we've reached what uh, I would call the halfway point in our study of the book of Daniel... I thought it would be appropriate today to go with a little halftime report, keeping an eye, you know, in recognition of the uh, start of the NFL season and college football, just so that all the guys will pay attention. We're going to have a halftime report. And the halftime report basically is going to focus our attention on what we've covered to date, but we've covered so much ground that I think it becomes, uh, there's a danger in that we could overlook the obvious. And there's one singular point of all the things that we've observed up to this date and of the many, you know, great insights that we've got to this point, there's one thing that I want you to leave here today with, and I don't want you to miss it. And as I was going through this first half of the book of Daniel, the question that continued to come to my mind was, what was it that made Daniel such a successful man in the sight of God? What was the one thing, if we could just grasp one thing and take it with us and make it a part of our life, what was the one thing that made Daniel a successful man in the sight of God? After all, here was a man who spent approximately 70 years in captivity under the authority of such ruthless men as Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Cyrus, and Darius. Men who at various times in their life were very hostile toward their enemies. In addition, they were extremely hostile to the God of Israel. Yet Daniel continued to find favor in the sight of them and in the sight of the Lord. And he was continually put in positions of responsibility and authority and of great influence in each of these empires. The question that we have to ask ourselves is what can we learn from him? What one thing can we grasp from this man's life? Run with it. What was the secret of his success? I believe that the answer is obvious. In fact, it's so obvious that many of us overlook the obvious because we look for the hidden and obscure meanings in life. We look for the hidden and obscure motivations behind certain things instead of just dealing with things plainly that are before our sight. And it's, and it's time that we take a look at this one thing and this one thing only because it is so obvious that I'm afraid that many of us are missing it in our personal lives. It is so obvious that it's time that God's people embrace this one truth, leave here today, change because of it, and never go back. The one truth that we see from the life of Daniel, if you've got your Bibles, is found in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. And I believe that this particular verse set the tone for everything that we've learned to date. And I want you to pick up on this one more time as we go through this. Because in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, Daniel comes face to face for the first time with opposition 
based upon what he believes to be true in his life. And he has a struggle and he's tempted and he has to deal with it. And he's in a hostile environment in a new place at a new time dealing with new people. And the common understanding of our world is this. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. But the problem with that is that's not a godly way to think. God wants us to be different. He doesn't want us to be conformed to this world. He doesn't want us to be like this world. He wants us to be in this world, but not of this world. He wants us to have contact with this world, but not be contaminated by it. He wants us to think radically and differently. He says, that don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You need to learn how to think differently. You need to see life from God's perspective. You need to see it as He sees it and begin to think as He thinks. And this is evident to us in the life of Daniel throughout his life. But what's really impressive to me is here was a kid 15 years of age who knew what he believed and why he believed it. And in verse, one, in verse 8 of chapter 1, we read these words. As he is confronted with the temptation to do what's wrong before God, we read this. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. Remember, in contrast, anytime you see the word but in your Bible, it indicates a severe contrast or serious contrast in thought. Up to this point, he is, he is being basically offered the world on a silver platter, and the price that he'd have to pay to have everything the world had to offer was very simple, and that's this. He had to compromise everything he believed about his God and what his God held to be highly right or wrong. That was the choice. That was the compromise. And what was interesting to me is, is that as we look at this, we, we see that as we, as we go through, that Daniel made up his mind. I believe it reveals to us everything we need to know from this point forward about the spiritual makeup of this man, Daniel. He made up his mind. He was confronted with an option or options that were wrong before God, and Daniel made up his mind that he wouldn't do that which was wrong. Daniel was a man who throughout his life refused to compromise. Regardless of potential personal consequences, he never wavered from what he believed to be right. He had a spiritual anchor that he held on to for dear life and never let go of it. That is why he was so successful. All leads us to a very relevant question for all of us today, and that's how can one be sure that what one believes is indeed right? Think about it. Is everyone's opinion equally valid? We hear it asked all the time. Well, how can you be so sure that what you believe is right? What's interesting is they almost uh, intimate that, well, you know, what makes you God? Interesting question. The point is very simply this. I'm not God. But I'll tell you this. I know what God says is right and wrong. And so if you're asking me why I believe what I'm telling you is right, it's very simple. Because I believe that I understand what God's position is on the particular matter. And so as we look at this, there seems to be much confusion in our day today with regards to absolute values. Are there things that are right and are there things that are wrong? And if so, how do we differentiate between the two? Daniel clearly saw that there was right and there was wrong and he was willing to die for what he believed to be right rather than compromise the truth. There are two things from this verse that I want to point out as we look at this, but the first one is this, and I don't want you to miss it because it's obvious. It says that Daniel's decision not to compromise his beliefs was made in his heart. It says literally that he made up his mind. He dug in, he hunkered down, he drew the line. In other words, he knew the difference between right and wrong. And he was absolutely 100% convinced, 100% convinced of that which was right and that which was wrong. 
And therefore, as he looked at this, there was no doubt or wavering on his part. He didn't doubt. He didn't waver. He didn't think it over. He didn't maul it around. He didn't uh, ask for other advice. He knew what was being asked him to do was simply wrong before God. And therefore, he just never wavered from it. He drew the line and said, that's it. I can't go beyond this line. How can we, too, have the same sense of confidence? After all, his confidence and conviction was so strong that he would rather die, if necessary, than compromise. The second thing that I want to point out is this, that his determination was based upon the Word of God. It says that he refused or made up his mind that he would not compromise the truth of God's Word. He knew what the Word of God said about what diets were uh, pleasing to God and which ones weren't. And when he was offered the choice of taking food that was displeasing to God, that violated the laws of God, he simply said that's not even an option. It's pretty obvious. God's Word says not to do it. Therefore, he made up his mind. He made a decision in his own heart. I can't do that which God says is wrong. His determination was based upon the Word of God. That was his standard for making decisions. Everything he believed, all of his convictions were found, and they found their roots in the Word of God. It was a clear understanding of the laws of God, his moral absolutes, God's unwavering, irrevocable moral laws that gave Daniel the determination to stand firm. Time after time, over the course of 70 years in captivity, when he was confronted by opposition and temptation... He continually went back to the Word of God as his standard for making decisions. Regardless of personal consequences, regardless of being thrown with a choice of thrown into the den of lions, regardless with the choice of losing your position of authority in this kingdom, regardless of what all the choices were, Daniel knew that there was no choice. If God's Word said it, he believed it, and he didn't doubt it, and he lived accordingly. That truth is so obvious to me that I think many of us miss it. And that's why I want to reinforce it. God's Word is our standard to make all of our decisions in life. Once we set aside the Word of God as the basis for making decisions, we are subject to any, the Bible says, wind of trickery or deceitful doctrine that blows along and we are subject to be cast morally adrift as a person and also as a society. The Word of God is our determining point to making decisions of whether something is right or wrong. And Daniel knew that. He was convinced of it. Now, the interesting thing for each of us to ask ourselves the question is this. How can you and I be totally 100% convinced that which we believe is right before God? And I want you to turn with me to Psalm 119. Psalm 119 gives us the answers that we need. How can you and I enjoy similar success as that of Daniel in a world that appears to be on the brink of moral and spiritual bankruptcy? Is there any more important subject in light of what's going on in our nation today than how to remain pure and clean before God? Psalm 119, we read these words. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. With all my heart I have sought thee. Don't let me wander from thy commandments. Thy word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Blessed art thou, O Lord, teach me thy statutes. With my lips I have told of all the ordinances of thy mouth. 
I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on thy precepts and regard thy ways. I shall delight in thy statutes, and I shall not forget your word. Before we take a closer look at this passage, I want to kind of recount a conversation that took place this past week with one of our customers. Somehow or another, the situation in Washington, D.C. came up in conversation. And the woman that I was talking to was very concerned about how do you teach your children when such nonsense takes place so publicly? How do you teach them what's right and how do you teach them what's wrong? And so I began to ask her the question, how do you teach your children? And she had, a, 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 I think, a 13-year-old son that she was concerned about. I said, how do you teach him how to make decisions in life? You know, how do you teach him what is right and how do you teach him what is wrong? And she said this, and it, and it made me stop and think, because I think many of us are subtly deceived into believing that this is an okay way to think. She said this. She said, well, I tell him when he's faced with decisions in life to always trust his heart, to always trust himself, to always believe in himself. And I don't know what kind of response she was looking for me. (laughs) And it didn't matter. And I gave her an illustration. I said, you know what's interesting is that uh, Lynn and I were at uh, our Angels Bible study the other day and uh, one of the guys was there. He just turned 30 and his wife got him a, a, a special birthday present. And so he said he walked out of the locker room and he said, Chuck, did you see what my wife got? And I said, no, I didn't see. He goes, well, when you go out in the parking lot, look at it. He said, when I walked out of, uh, of the, the, where they get dressed and leave, there's a, a player's area where they park. He said, when I walked out, I saw a big ribbon on, on this vehicle with a bow. And it said... You know, happy birthday. And he said, I almost had a heart attack. Because she didn't even talk to me about it. And there was a Ferrari sitting in the parking lot. He said, he was like, you know, you know how that is, guys, when when you pay for your own birthday presents. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) Thank thank you, I think. (laughs) But, but, and he was like, you know, he walked over to it and he was trembling and shaking. And he got around to the driver's door and it said, don't worry I only rented it for two days. <laughs> he was like, yeah. So anyway, he gets in the car and he goes, man, Chuck, do you know those things have six gears? I said, I got to take your word for it. And then, you know what I'm saying? He goes, they got six gears. In second gear, you can go up to 60. Third gear, 90. I said, well, what you get up to? I said, well, I got up to like fourth gear. <laughs> so you do the math. Now, I said, well, well, but did it feel like you were going that fast? He goes, no, man, it didn't feel like you were moving at all. I said, oh, interesting. So I was telling this woman this story. And I said, now, if he would have got pulled over going, let's just say 120. And the officer said, excuse me, sir, do you realize that you were going 120 miles an hour and the speed limit's 65? Now, just consider the advice that you give to your son. He says to the officer, but officer... I was trusting my feelings. I was going from my heart. I was trusting myself that I could handle this machine. Now, what, now, now what do you think would happen to him? He'd get himself in big trouble, right? And then she's like, uh-oh, where are we going? Here it comes, you know, here it comes. So we'll just stop and think. Our heart is so deceitful and wicked that we can't trust even ourselves sometimes. 
Now, I was sitting with Matt in prison again yesterday, and I began to realize something that God's really impressed upon me, and that's this. Do you realize that most prisons are filled with people who trusted in their emotions and did what they wanted to do? Right? I'm mad at you. I feel like punching you. I'm trusting my heart and my decision. I'm going to bust your face. I'm just kidding. I'm really not. <laughs> you can't get all defensive here. You know, it's like, come on. But, but, but you see what I'm saying? It's like, you see how, I mean, think about it. I'm, I'm angry. I'm going to trust my emotions and I'm going to act upon my anger. So I'm going to hit you. I'm going to stab you. I'm going to shoot you. I'm going to rape you. I'm angry and, and or, you know, I, I'm envious of what you have. And I don't have it. And I think that I should have it. Based on what's in my heart, I feel like you don't deserve it and I should have it. I'm going to come and steal it from you. So can you imagine the kind of counsel that we would give someone to say trust their emotions or their feelings or trust themselves? What do you think our president did? He ran with his emotions. He ran with his feelings. There's no other explanation for it. And the, and the reason I say that is this. You and I can't trust our emotions. We cannot trust our feelings. Because they mislead us, they are deceptive, and they will lead us into actions that will get us into all kind of trouble if we do not control them in an appropriate way. What's my point? The point is this. We all need an objective standard by which to measure human behavior. That's why we have laws. There is no one above the law. No one. And if we come to a point in our culture or society where we begin to allow people to be above the law, then the law is not valuable to society anymore and we cannot govern a people. Anarchy reigns. That's why, the, that's why we've heard the saying, there is no one above the law. And there is a reason for that. It protects us from one another and protects us from ourselves and doing things that are wrong before society. And what I want to tell you is this, and are wrong before God. God has established laws that are irrevocable, irrefusable, irrefusable, and non-negotiable. And all human behavior is to be measured by that standard. Listen to me. Human behavior is not what we use to measure other human behavior. We run into all kinds of problems. Well, who are we to judge? We are not to judge based on our own behavior. We are to judge based on the standard of absolute that is set as a law or the law of God. Can you imagine how ridiculous it is when I hear interviews of people saying, but you know what, I'll just, you know, who are we to judge? All of us have sinned. All of us fall short. All of us make mistakes. Yeah, we all do. But we're all accountable to a standard that's objective, not to one another's behavior. You don't tune a piano with another piano. You use a tuning fork to tune a piano. You need an objective standard. We cannot, we cannot judge one another based on one another's failures. Could you imagine you're driving down the road and use the same illustration. He's going 120 miles an hour. The cop pulls him over and says, sir, you're going 120 miles an hour. And the driver says to him, well, you know what? Do you really feel that you can give me a ticket? Because after all, have you not ever driven above the speed limit? Oh, good argument. Sorry, sir, for, you know, inconveniencing you today. Go ahead and do what you want. Because who am I to enforce the law? Here's who you are. You're a law enforcement officer. Do you understand how, how confused we're getting here? We need an absolute standard. And we have to recognize what that standard is. $178 fine, speaking from a man of, I'm sure, much experience. 
Now, the problem that we have is I've got an objective standard. And it's this watch, and that's why those people are leaving. And, uh, and that's why some of you will get up and leave. And uh, now the thing is that our halftime report will have to be continued till next week because, you know, that's just the way life is sometimes. And I am not going to rush through this because it's too important for each of us to grasp it and to get it. If nothing else but this today, grab this one little thing, and that's this. You and I need to measure our behavior against an objective standard. We need to measure the behavior of others against an objective standard. Whether it, whether it is the laws of God or whether it is the laws of a nation, we must measure behavior against a standard that is non-negotiable and then we take action accordingly. Why was Daniel so successful? And we'll see in great detail next time. Don't miss it. He was successful because he knew the word of God was truth. He believed in the word of God and he acted upon it regardless of what the potential consequences were. He never wavered from the word of God. Please come back next time. You'll, and in fact, invite some folks that are struggling with how do you deal with what's going on in our nation today. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's truth and that you sanctify us in truth. And we'll just pray that as we consider some of the opinions and things that are going on around us in our world, that as we get together and look into your word, that you give us the clarity that you promise. And we just praise you in Christ's name. Amen.